Now, I, um, I know... I know for a fact, I've heard from many of you, that you've already heard this sermon. Yeah. Because you've gone ahead. Because Mark Calder's already put them up on YouTube. I saw him during the week and I had a go at him about it. <laughs> but, I, but thank you for being here, even if you have already heard it. You're very brave. Now, we're in the season of Lent. And Lent is traditionally a time for self-reflection and seeking out that renewed understanding of our need for repentance and of forgiveness that comes through Jesus. And we do all that as we come to the Easter weekend and see the crucified and risen Christ in fresh eyes. I never tire of thinking on this incredible truth of grace. I never tire of it. That through what Jesus did by dying on the cross and rising again to new life, that that not only means that we don't get what we deserve as fallen sinners, but it means that we do get what we don't deserve. That's incredible. We do get what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness and mercy, that beautiful, full and free relationship with God and eternity thrown in. Grace given and received continues to be for me a mind-blowing thing. We are truly faulty people with a faultless saviour. And as we look at this series of faulty biblical characters, I hope that you will take that opportunity to do the self-reflection. It's hard work uh, to learn more of the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus, our faultless saviour. And I pray that while you do that, you will grow. I find that part of helpful self-reflection is to grow in self-awareness, to actually learn more about me and who I am. And I think that this is vital for us to grow up into that maturity in Christ as we're urged to do by Paul. I remember really well a long time ago now my response when I first heard the insights of the Jahari window. Now, I thought it was a fantastic way of not only understanding myself, uh, but of also being proactive and simply honest with myself about myself and how I grow, who I am. And when you're honest with yourself, it helps enormously with something that is really helpful to be as a Christian, and that is, I think, it helps us with humility. To increase in self-awareness helps us with humility, which I think is never a bad thing. So the Jahari window is a self-diagnostic tool, uh, and there's four quadrants in the window. So I hope you can read that. Uh, I'll take you through it. And if you've never... How many of you have heard of the Jahari window? Okay, so there's quite a few of you that haven't. I hope I explain it well enough that in a few minutes you'll have an idea. So the first quadrant, which is the top left, so we're going to go left, right, left, right. So the first quadrant on the top left, that's about the stuff that... I know about me and everybody else knows it too. I had people saying to me last night, gee, you're short, aren't you? I go, yeah, I know. (laughs) And you know that too. And uh, it just seemed a surprise to them last night, not because it was something new that they'd learnt, but last night they realised how short I was, apparently. I think it was because I was standing next to somebody else who wasn't short. So, look, it's things that... I know about me and you know about me. 
And I know I know them and I know you know them and it's okay. It's okay. The second quadrant is stuff about me that others know, but I have no idea. There are things about myself that I'm blind to. And so for me to find out about those things, I either need to ask people to tell me, in other words, seek feedback, tell me how things are going with me, you know, is there anything that needs, I need to learn? Um, or other people decide off their own bat that I need to know and they make sure that they tell me. <laughs> I could stay ignorant of those things if people don't tell me. Um, or I can stay ignorant because I don't want to know, so I don't ask for the feedback. So the blind spot. It's about things that you know and I don't know, and I don't know that I don't know them. The third quadrant is the stuff that I know about me and you don't. <laughs> and uh, you're only going to find out if I reveal it to you. And depending on our relationship, maybe I will and maybe I won't. Depends. Depends how much about me I want you to know. So that's about stuff that I know I know about me, but you don't know that you don't know it about me. And maybe I'll make sure you never find out. <laughs> the fourth quadrant is totally unknown. It's stuff about me that I don't know, and I don't know that I don't know it, and you don't know it either, and you don't know that you don't know it. Okay? So for things to come out of that quadrant... Um, there needs to be a way of discovery and shared discovery for us both to know. And that takes work. So, who now knows about the Jahari window? Oh, okay. I'm not going to go through it again. I, but I, I think you really do. Now, look, as I've been looking at the woman at the well, I, I've found this is a helpful way for me to understand her and what Jesus does with her. Uh, I think it really is a wonderful encounter and it's a fascinating insight into human discovery about what this woman found out about herself through Jesus. There's plenty that she knew about herself, but there was plenty more that Jesus knew. And he shared so much with her about her life, her needs, her personality and her potential. And what a privilege we have to see her grow into that potential, so much so, in fact, that she brought many of her village to Jesus. I'm wanting to take us through today what I see as the characteristics of this faulty person, but I think that they are characteristics which we often all exhibit as well. So I'm hopeful that we can all learn. What I see in this woman are these things. She hides from the truth and looks in all the wrong places. She hides from the truth and looks in all the wrong places. She changes the subject when things get a little bit close. She's a bit slow on the uptake sometimes. But there's good news because she also grasps the truth and changes. I think those are her characteristics. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed, but of all the six studies in this Lenten series, our person today is the only one that is nameless. The only one that is nameless. Our five other people have names. Last week was Thomas. 
Then we've got James next week. There's two Marys and there's Nicodemus. They all have names. But this woman, who I believe we get to know so well, has remained nameless to the church for centuries. Isn't that sad? But let's thank God that she teaches us so much through this revealing and personal interaction with Jesus. So how did it come to be that Jesus was near this town of Sychar to have the conversation? Well, they say that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Yep. Uh, And Jesus was going from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. So let me just... So here's Judea down here and here's Galilee up here. So go straight up there and that's the shortest way. The reason he was making the journey was because the Pharisees had found out about the number of baptisms that was happening in his camp and the number of baptisms that were happening in John's camp and they weren't happy, so he exited the south and uh, went north. And as he moved north, it was the opportunity for his ministry up there to begin. But he had to get there. And there are two possible ways to get there. Um, The longer route was through Gentile territory, which is around here and up that way. And the other way, uh, that way through, through the Gentile territory, you had to cross the Jordan River twice. And the short way, of course, was to go straight north. Now, both these routes had issues. If you take the longer journey through the east, where you had to cross the Jordan River twice, and go through Gentile territory. Or do you take the short route and mix with the awful Samaritans? Now, let me tell you why that was a problem. You see, there was mutual hostility between Jew and Samaritan. They didn't get on because back in 722 BC, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, They deported most of the people, most of the Jews, gone. Some Israelites stayed behind, not many. And the Assyrians relocated other people in to take over this newly acquired land. So the Jews that were left intermarried with the newbies and it became a mixed race a distinctly Jewish identity was lost. And the Jews from the south didn't think that was up to scratch. The Samaritans still worshipped Yahweh and used the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but there was hostility around politics and ethnicity and purity of religion. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped on Mount Zion. And because the Samaritans were seen as religiously tainted, no self-respecting Jew would engage with them. But that's the way Jesus went. The text doesn't tell us why Jesus went through Samaria. It simply says he had to. Isn't that interesting? He had to. It's pretty safe to assume that he didn't choose that route to be quicker because he had to be in the north for an appointment. Um, because we see how easily he stayed there an extra two days at the end of the story. I believe what we're seeing here is Jesus crossing boundaries. 
choosing, willingly choosing to do so. It was a geopolitical boundary. It was a social boundary, which Jesus ignored. He totally ignored it, purposefully crossing boundaries. Now, to walk through Samaritan territory was one thing, but then to talk to a Samaritan woman added another layer. It's because of these particular boundaries that uh, Jesus' parable about the good Samaritan is so important. Do you remember that one? In that parable, it was a Samaritan who helped a Jew. And here we have Jesus, a Jew, asking a Samaritan woman for help. Give me a drink, he says. We're introduced to this nameless woman as she comes to the well at the unusual time of midday. We don't know why she came then. Uh, The usual time for collecting water to avoid the heat was early morning, late afternoon. Um, And the usual interpretation has been that she was a woman of ill repute and may be held in low regard by those in her town. So she had to come at a time different to everyone else. But the text is silent on this. So let's not unnecessarily assume that that was the case. And look, the, the story tells us that she seems to have a good relationship with the people in her village because she goes and talks to them. Come and see this guy. So let's not unnecessarily assume that she was there at that time of day because she was a woman of ill repute. There could have been any number of reasons that she was there uh, at this, on this day at that particular time, which, of course, may also may have been arranged by God. <laughs> And not surprisingly, she's surprised that Jesus is there and asks her for help. His question is a very basic one. He just asks that his simple need be met. He says, give me a drink. He wanted his thirst to be quenched. But in that simple question, he puts his finger on her point of need. He nails it right there. He asks her for water because he's thirsty. But as he does that, he exposes her deeper need for spiritual water, for living water. And he helps her to see something about herself that she didn't realize. And John has already told us this about Jesus. If you've got your Bible there, have a look at this. At the end of chapter 2, John tells us this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival... Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knew what was in each person. Isn't that incredible? That insight from John at the end of chapter 2 then sets up really well the encounter with Nicodemus, which Pete Stedman will take us through in a couple of weeks' time. But it also helps us understand how Jesus could go deeper in this conversation with this woman because he knows all things about all people. He knows the unknown parts of us all and will expose them to us if we engage with him. Jesus knew about the Jahari window before the psychologists did. 
Our friend at the well responds to Jesus with disbelief that he is asking her for a drink because he's a Jew. But Jesus' response is so beautiful. Did you notice it? He basically says, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for what only I can give you. And she responds from a purely physical perspective. Jesus went straight to the spiritual need, but she's staying with the physical. What is it that she says? You see, she's hiding from the truth and she looks in all the wrong places. She says to him, you don't have a bucket. How do you think you're going to draw this water from the well? Are you more smart than Jacob who gave us the well? Come on. The conversation continues with Jesus pointing out that water that comes from the well won't do what his living water will do. But she stays with the physical understanding and replies, give me this water so that I don't have to keep coming back here every day. See, she's staying with the physical again. Have you seen, this ad is back on TV again. Have you seen the ad with the woman who comes home from work and the genie's there? She can have whatever she wants. What does she ask for? Fill up the Tim Tam packet, please. And here it is, the Tim Tams go. She can eat them and it's back again. This is where this woman is at. Give me this living water so I don't have to come back and keep filling up the bucket. She's staying with the physical when Jesus is saying, this is spiritual. Why is it that she's persisting with that? See, she's trying to answer spiritual questions in physical ways. We do that as well, don't we? You and me. We do it. So often we are a bit slow on the uptake. It takes her a while to get the point, and so often it takes us a while for the light to come on. You see, physical answers are always and only temporary. They don't last. And because they don't last, they will let us down. We will always be dissatisfied with a physical answer to a spiritual need. But Jesus was trying to meet her deepest need, her deepest, and she hadn't grasped that fact. Jesus knew there was a blockage in her heart, so as, he tries to, as she tries to hide from the truth and look in the wrong places, he cuts straight to what he knew was her real need and asks, bring your husband. Ouch. Ouch. I can't begin to imagine how she felt as she replied to Jesus. I don't have a husband. But he lets her know that he knows the truth. And he then tells her her own reality. That she's had five husbands and now she's with a man who isn't her husband. What an incredibly sad life this woman must have had incredibly sad. We don't know the circumstances around this reality. We have no idea. We don't know whether she'd been widowed all these times or whether she was morally suspect. But I believe that this reply from Jesus is one of compassion and care. And yet this woman, what does she do? She moves into another realm of denial. Did you see it? Did you pick it up? Because at this point, she doesn't hide from the truth and look in all the wrong places. She realizes that's futile. He'll know. 
But what she does now is acknowledge the obvious. She says, uh, yep, you're right. And then she changes the subject. She tries to move Jesus into a theological discussion by talking about the differences between Jews and Samaritans. She says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, this too, I believe, gives us great insight into this woman. She was theologically literate and astute, and she could easily engage in a deep conversation about these significant theological matters that separated them, and she wasn't afraid to do it. But it's a decoy. It's a decoy. And Jesus disarms her arguments about geography and takes her to the place she needs to go. He basically says to her, get beyond the physical. Worship on Mount Gerizim, not the point. Worship on Mount Zion, not the point. The point is that true worshippers will worship not in a place, but in a new way, with a new attitude. They will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, at this point, you can see the woman's mind ticking over with excitement and interest when she says, I know that Messiah is coming, called Christ, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says, it's me. It's me. And at this point, the faulty person sees the faultless saviour. She doesn't hide from the truth anymore and look in the wrong places. She doesn't change the subject. She's not slow on the uptake anymore, but she grasps the truth, and when she finally gets it, she can't keep it in. I've got goosebumps going up and down my spine at the moment as I hear that again. She grasps the truth, and she can't keep it in. She goes back to the town and tells everyone she knows about Jesus and says, come, See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Friends, when we know Jesus, when we finally get it, how can we not share it with others? How can we not? How can we keep it in? It's something that we must not keep to ourselves. We need to be sharing it. Sharing what we know, sharing the grace we have received with others. Because there are people out there who need it, who are lost without it. You see, when our life is touched by the authenticity of Jesus, it involves a change of heart. It cannot be just outward observance. It has to be inward change. There has to be. Jesus is saying that real followers of God worship in real and complete sincerity. Now, by the way, the disciples are back. And they are, to say the least, surprised that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman. But the even more surprising thing about the disciples, and this is incredible, they are really just like the woman. Because they want Jesus to eat something. He talks about a new kind of food, and they don't know what it's talking about. They, it's like they're going, you know, they just don't understand. They're going, well, who else has given him? Who's brought him food? You know, who, who brought you the food? 
The disciples are faulty people as well who are a bit slow on the uptake. What about the people of Sychar? Because the woman goes back to them and they come out of the village and come to Jesus. They listen and they like what they hear. In fact, they like it so much that they beg him to stay and he does for another two days. I don't think he was in too much of a hurry to get to Galilee. He didn't have his three o'clock on Thursday to get to. I love verses 41 and 42. Because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This woman acted as an evangelist, as a missionary outside the Jewish world before the disciples even knew how to. In one short encounter, this faulty person met the faultless saviour and became an evangelist. My friends, how is your faulty life being met by the faultless saviour? What is he revealing to you about yourself that brings change to your mind and your heart and therefore your behaviour? And how is that impacting on others? Shall we pray? Lord, speak the truth into our lives and help us not to hide. Help us not to look in the wrong places or be slow to hear it or to change the subject. Lord, please help us to grasp hold of your beautiful truth and please bring change to our lives for our sake, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of this faulty world. We thank you, faultless saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.